At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. It is wonderful to have you in the house of the Lord today as we open up this book of Zephaniah. Honestly, I've been crushed by the weight of the wrath of God this week as I've read these chapters and these verses. The majority of this book is written on wrath, some probably 80% of it, and it is crushing. But, But equally, if not more, amazing then his wrath is his love. We'll be able to get to that today, this morning as well. But let's start with this. God hates sin, and he punishes sinners. There's no avoiding this absolute truth found from cover to cover, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God hates sin with the fury of his being. Everything at his core is against it. He is pure and he is holy. He is totally without sin and cannot be in the presence of sin. Sin is also a slap in the face to God. It's a defiance of his law and his will. It's as bold of a statement as to say, I know better than you, God. What I should do, how I should act, how I should seek my own pleasure, and how I should place my worship. This is, in essence, our human pride. It says, God, I know better than you. Therefore, as a just and righteous God, he must punish the sinner. We'll see this today in Zephaniah as we open up the pages of this prophet and read of the day of wrath to come. This message, repeated by many a prophet, can seem like empty promises that are never fulfilled. But let there be no mistake. Our God is an absolute God. He keeps his promises. And his promise are to punish sinners to the uttermost. This also most certainly includes reaping the consequences for our actions here on earth. As we'll see today, the consequences of Judah's disobedience and flirting with their surrounding enemies was the destruction from a stronger nation. Of Babylon. Yet this punishment pales into con- in comparison with the eternal punishment of hell that will be suffered by those who oppose God on that final day. But just as our God has wrath, he has love. The fact is that it is so evident by his wrath for sin how much he loves his children. And in fact, the statement is true, and I want it to stay in our minds today as we read chapter after chapter and verse after verse of the anger and the wrath of the Lord. Let's remember this. God's wrath for our sin is only ever overcome by his joy for our salvation. He is jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane, and I'm a tree. The force of the fury is directed at the chains that bind you and me and keep us from him. 
And let's be real, this message is so hated and quickly demonized in the church of God today that is rarely preached and rarely stood upon as a character of God. But with humble ears and contrite hearts, the message of God's judgment must remind us that he is God and we are not. And our position is on our knees in repentance with hands raised in praise for our salvation. So let's open up our Bibles because you definitely want to make sure this morning that I'm not making this up. Uh, let's open to Zephaniah verse 1 where the prophet makes his introduction. He says this, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Unlike many other prophets, Zephaniah does not give us a time or a place in his introduction. He doesn't say in the sixth month on the fifth day of the reign of king so-and-so, instead he gives us his lineage. And what's odd as well is oftentimes a lineage in this sense is given for three generations, but he adds a fourth. He adds Hezekiah. Some commentators would say that it's actually the king Hezekiah of which was a, Josiah the king was a descendant of. Uh, that's not necessarily confirmed. You would think in his introduction he would say king Hezekiah, but either way it, it's a possibility. Um, but he is writing in the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah is the king of Judah at this time. The king of Judah had, this king had followed two terrible kings. Hezekiah had a son, his name was Manasseh. King Manasseh was a terrible king and much had gone wrong in those days of the reigns of Manasseh and then his son, uh, Amon. Unlike his father, Manasseh erected shrines in the, to the temple for pagan gods. He had temple prostitutes as well as pagan priests, sorcerers, necromancers, and astrologers who sought the influence of other gods, stars, and spirits. He was then followed by his son, King Amon, who continued much of the same. It was simply said in 2 Kings that he walked in all the ways in which his father walked and served all the idols of which his father served, and he worshipped them. Both of these kings continued to lead Judah far from their God. Upon Amon's death, Josiah began his reign at the age of eight. He took the throne, but his legacy was one marked with much reform and revival in Judah. He removed the temple prostitutes as well as the priests and the sorcerers and the necromancers from the temple. He tore down the pagan monuments and reestablished the Passover, which had not been for many years. It was at that time when Zephaniah prophesied about the wrath of to us to come on the children of Judah. Remember, this time period was during the reign of the Assyrians as well, as they had taken over all of that part of the world prior to the rise of Babylon. Therefore, this prophecy is a pre-exile prophecy. But, but just think of it. It was just simply 40 or 50 years prior 
to that prophecy coming true where Babylon would fulfill and wreak havoc and destruction on Jerusalem and the surrounding nations. So let's move on. Verses 2 and 3 says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. If you're reading along in your Bible, the heading here says the coming judgment on Judah. What is that judgment? Utter and total destruction, right? Am I missing something? What does he say? What does he say? What does Zephaniah say? He says, I will utterly sweep away everything. And the following lines describe what utterly and everything means. It means man, animals, fish, and the birds. God is pronouncing a judgment upon his chosen people that says, I will wipe you in the fullness of your land off the face of the map. And listen to this, God will punish sin to the uttermost. Now, we have been in the minor prophets for a while, so this message may not seem extreme to you. Kind of like when a parent threatens doom and gloom over a disobedient child, over and over the message seems to diminish. However, this would be a completely wrong sentiment towards the word of God It would be a proud and indifferent heart that would say, there is no judgment to come. This is exactly the heart to which it is coming. But look at the words of the Lord again, because in view is not only the Babylonian invasion. Though it would be fierce and brutal, the final judgment and the return of Christ is what is in view. Notice he says, from the face of the earth, he's wiping them from the face of the earth. It seems to intend much more than Judah or the surrounding area, but instead a judgment of the whole world on the final days of the Lord. This will be a final day when Jesus returns to bring judgment upon the enemies of God, when he will defeat all of the enemies and cast them into hell to burn for eternity, to punish them for their opposition to a just and holy God. But the prophecy quickly closes in. Let's continue on, verses 4 through 6. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. And against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from them the place, or this place, the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear to Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Now the view narrows to Judah in the city of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom as the Lord says he will stretch out his hand against Judah and the inhabitants thereof. And he lays out the reasons for his wrath. Did you see it? It's their sin. It's their sin in general and in particular. You see, sin in general is a failure to conform to God's moral law, not only in action and attitude, but also in your moral nature. 
It's our rebellion against God's authority in our life. Jehovah was their authority, yet the people of Judah act as if they are authority over their own life and could decide for themselves what was right or wrong. Sound familiar? And therefore they tried to strip God of his right place and his law over them. Their faith was reckless. And in general, they were, as a people, declaring that there is not truth. There is no truth, yet nothing is false. I can accept anything that tickles my ears or my fancy. However, in particular, God lists out three reasons for his judgment. Idolatry, syncretism, and indifference. So let's go through those real quick. That's what he's calling out here. Idol- he, for idolatry, he's calling out the idolatrous priests and the remnant of Baal in this time period. There were no true priests. During the reign of both Manasseh and Amon, pagan religious men had infiltrated the priesthood of God and created a group that no longer taught sound doctrine. Nor did they call the people to right living or repentance to God. Instead, they offered worship and sacrifices to those other gods. They worshiped the stars and the dead, pagan gods of their enemies, and all manner of carved images. Instead of offering their worship to the one and only true God, whose love is poured out on his chosen people, his people would flee from his love, choosing to place their worship on false gods, and he pursues them with his wrath. Next, he he judges them for their sin of syncretism. They would worship Jehovah God along with other pagan gods and idols. From the assimilation of religious men into the priesthood of God came the worship of Baal, Molech, and other pagan gods along with the one true God. This, therefore, is no longer true worship but spiritual adultery. It's a shotgun approach, as if the Jewish people had a harem of gods to choose from to satisfy their needs, their daily needs. What do I need today? Who do I go to? Who's going to say yes to the desires of my heart? If I ask anybody and everybody, then someone is bound to give me what I want. Last is their religious indifference. These people were apostate, meaning they turned away from following God and they were indifferent in their hearts to his commands. Maybe they profess their love for God, but their actions tell otherwise. They are not a servant of the living God, but rather a slave to sin and the desires of their minds and their bodies. And as Paul says, by nature, children of wrath. Maybe they are Jewish in culture only, having known or understood the teachings of the Lord, but not placing them as an authority over their life, thus saying in their mind, does it really matter? Does it really matter? Please realize that indifference is just along with idolatry and syncretism, blatant disbelief. It will be punished along with idolatry and syncretism alike. Maybe upon hearing these categories, you too are convicted this morning of your idolatry, of your syncretism, or your indifference. These sins are not confined to the pages of the Old Testament, but rather are conditions of a fallen and sinful heart. Idolatry in our hearts today looks like placing anything, anything above the Lord. 
It could be as outwardly uh, sinful as wine or your own power. It could be the idol of self-seeking after your own gain or your own pleasure above the worship of the Lord. More easily hidden can be the ideal, idol of family or children where we essentially worship them with our time, with our talent, with our treasure and expect of them what only God can do the requirements that only God can fulfill and, and, and offer them worship that only God deserves. It could be where we pour all of our time or maybe sources out into elongating our life that the Lord has given us or maybe it's a mindset of just saying, I know best. I will get what I want. Or maybe for you, it's the blending of your faith with other religions, beliefs, or worldviews. It, it can be difficult to defend your beliefs sometimes when you're talking with your friends or with your family or colleagues, and their claims, maybe they don't seem that bad. In fact, they may even be much more palatable than what's contained here in the Bible. And it's just less conflict then to accept their point of view as truth. Maybe it's easier politically to go with the flow and make people feel happy and loved and accepted, whatever truth they espouse. And if that is the case, then what do you actually believe is contained in, in the Bible? And, and, and do you believe this is the truth. If this is the truth, this is the 66 books of the Bible, this is a canon. Canon means measuring stick by which all other truth claims are measured. And there is only one truth, and it's God's word. But if today you were placing anything else upon God's word as a criteria for worship or holiness or acceptance, then you are out of step with the very claims that the Bible has that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Maybe you're convicted this morning for your indifference, and it doesn't even have to show itself as a hatred to Jesus or Christianity, but just an indifference like the people of Judah who have turned their back and don't seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is a knowledge of Jesus as Lord with a, with heart, without heart affection. And what is so terrible about it is it's so quick to overtake your heart, a season of pain, a season of trial uh, it can turn into a life of walking away from the one true God in utter indifference to the future to come. For each one of these reasons, I call us this morning to repent and turn to the Lord. There is forgiveness and hope for those who turn to him. But for those who do not, the day of the Lord is coming. Let's read verses 7 through 18. It says this. Be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near, and the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. 
And on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good and he will not do ill. The, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid to waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. They, though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink. Now, for the intended readers of this prophecy, the lens narrows again on Judah as the Lord gathers his people for judgment. Similar to the sins of the people being idolatry, syncretism, and indifference, he begins again to list out who he will punish and why. Beginning with the officials and the king's sons, those who array themselves in foreign attire and fill their houses with violence and leap over the threshold though there isn't more detail that you can infer of this governing class who was uh, seeking the, to follow the lord uh, was not seeking to follow the lord but rather seeking to assimilate with surrounding kingdoms in their dress and in their customs and this seems to anger the lord most likely because it was yet another line that was blurred as people sought to follow the world versus the king Zephaniah begins to allude to the sounds of the invasion. Did, did you hear that? He said a wail. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, he says um, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. It's like, it's like have you ever heard an ambulance? It's coming from a long distance off. It gets louder and louder and louder. And, and, and even as it passes you, there's a, there's a tremble from the, the loudness of its cry in the same way he's, he's giving an allusion to the invasion of Jerusalem from its surrounding foes, specifically from Babylon, and you're hearing the cries come out. They're, they're distant at first, but they get louder and louder and louder and louder until it's upon you. This day, this day of wrath, cry begins and it, and it overtakes you. The cry of the, inv the invading nation, a stampede of invading horses. The screams of the invading forces will be heard throughout Jerusalem because of God's wrath. In, in verse 11, he switches back to indifference and complacency uh, found in men's hearts who say the Lord will not do good and he will not do ill. This complacency is most likely not economic, they're not complacent in their jobs. They're not complacent in the things that they must do, yet they are complacent in the Lord. They are indifferent to him. Most likely, these men went to work and did their job, but rather it was spiritual complacency, one that had no time for considering the Lord. Is this you this morning? No time for prayer. No time for scripture. No time for devotion. No time for meditating on the Lord. Are we complacent and indifferent this morning? to the Lord's call on our life. Side note, this rebuke on indifference and complacency seems to be ringing a bell that the church needs to hear. For I believe the church in the South and probably the church all over the U.S. and the world has much to consider on this topic. 
When we rest our faith on the faith of generations before us, we are complacent. When we rest our individual ministries on the ministries of others in the church, we are being complacent when it doesn't matter to us what is being taught and what is being said in the church. We are being indifferent. And if we are continually giving more and more time and our enjoyment of him, schools and hobbies and life than the will of the Lord and our enjoyment of him, and our indifferent heart, then our indifferent hearts will continue to grow weary and hard and disregard his presence. Let's continue in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty men cries aloud. The day of wrath is a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and a devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them from the day of the wrath of the Lord in the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed for for a full and sudden end. He will make all of the inhabitants of the earth. This dark description of the wrath of God which is poured out at the day of the Lord is horrid to imagine. The the one thing that I will point out in this section of scripture versus exegeting every line is this, our earthly security is no defense against the wrath of God said he will strike them blind so they can't see. How much do we depend on our sight to see what we are going to believe? We say, if we can't see it, how can we believe it? The Lord is striking them blind. Not to mention for us here in America America, who place our value on our retirement savings. He said, there is neither silver nor gold shall deliver them from the wrath of the day of destruction. How much or weight are we putting on our savings for retirement, our savings for our expenditures next week, our amassing of money so that we can get the things that we want in this world when the Lord said, there is nothing that you can have or do that can stop the day of the Lord from taking it all away. There is no security in the defense of the wrath to come, no silver nor gold. The more you have the more you have to protect, and the more able you are to protect yourselves, we tell ourselves, but not with the Lord. Your money is nothing to him. Your wealth is rags. Your savings is not secure, and it will be all brought to nothing at the day of the Lord. And what's interesting to note at the end of verse 18 is jealousy. This jealousy says in the fire, he says in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed. And the question is, what is he jealous for? The answer is, for his chosen people. He is jealous for their heart because it's the only through him that they can experience fullness of joy. He is jealous for their worship because he alone is worthy of worship. He is jealous for your service because you are bought with a price and ransomed from the slavery of sin. He is jealous for you this morning, your heart and your mind and your soul. Let's continue into chapter 2. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. 
Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decrees take place, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of anger of the Lord." He says, gather together and hear the indictments against God's chosen people so as to be drawn into repentance. This isn't a parent making threats. This is the God of the universe who controls all things and orchestrates the future. He is not making threats as if to scare you into obedience. He is certainly making known future events so as to draw his disobedient children into repentance. God even says, gather before the decree takes effect, before the anger of the Lord settles on you. This is as much a call to Judah as it is to us today. Gather, repent, take upon yourselves the only one who can assuage the wrath of God's jealous anger. And this is Jesus Christ, church. He has gathered us together in him. He has created a way for relationship with God by taking on himself the wrath that was coming towards us and shielding it from us. Therefore, repent and seek the Lord. Seek righteousness and humility. These are available to us when the Holy Spirit turns our heart of stone into a heart of flesh through regeneration, and we're able to then see and seek God. We can take on Christ's righteousness through the great exchange on the cross where he takes upon us his sin, our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. And we can walk in humility as we realize we can't earn his love, nor can we buy it. And we don't deserve it. We deserve the wrath. And that's what's coming to the world. Zephaniah reader use four through the end of the chapter. I'm going to read it as fast as I can. For Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, the inhabitants of the sea coast and the nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. You, O seacoast, shall be pastures and meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. Amen. And which shall they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. He's talking about in the day of the Lord. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. The remnant of the people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride because they've taunted and boasted against the people 
of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, and he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands and the nations. Oh, you Cushites shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like a desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, and all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on her threshold, and her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in its heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation. She has become a lair of wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes her fists. Through the description of the destruction of the enemies of Judah, we see the four corners of the world uh, that, that wraps around the promised land. He calls out the Philistines to the west, the Ammonites to the east, Ethiopia to the south, and the dreaded Assyrians to the north. And the destruction to these people is similar to that which he pronounces upon the Israelites. Total destruction of their people, animals, land, and commerce. But it seems that there's several layers to this judgment, and I'll run through them real quick. The first would be the impending invasion and desolation that would be coming by the hands of the Babylonians. They're essentially going to take over all this land that was just named here. It would be a brutal undertaking which would leave these nations destroyed and exiled the land in from the work. Next. There's a mention of the exiles of Judah inheriting the land. This will be fulfilled partially here on earth, but most likely fulfilled in the return of Christ during his reign where he gathers all the nations, defeats them, and then they, he gives the land to his children, the new heaven and the new earth. Last uh, would be the ultimate and total destruction despite all of their might when they faced return of Christ on that last day. Every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Moving on, finally, chapter 3. Woe to her who is the rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near her officials. Within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle and treacherous men. Her priests are profane what is holy. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Again, Jerusalem and its religious atrocities are under the microscope of God's anger. Woe to the oppressing city, which is Jerusalem. And with its prophets and its priests who were out for their own gain, who were clothed as pagans and did not seek the goodwill of the, the people, but rather sought their own gain to fleece the flock. Listen to the description. For God says they did not listen to the Lord's voice or accept his correction. The Lord is turning the screw here, meaning he's continuing to drill down on the central focus of Judah's disobedience. They were disobedient in all manner of their hearts and their minds and their hands and their worship. Here's the key that I think we must hear today. Just because they claimed the name of Jehovah God did not mean they were safe from the wrath. They couldn't just put a little God on and be safe. Just as we can't add a little Jesus 
and be, have the Father be pleased with us. That should make us tense up in our seats as we hear the indictment to God's own people. The fact that you're sitting here today does not make you safe from the wrath of God. It is only a humble heart devoted to worship to the Lord who accepts Jesus Christ as his Savior and committed to a cut-off nation who will be safe. Let's move to verse 6. He says, I've cut off nations, their battlements and their ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. The dwelling uh, would not be cut off to make all, all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up and seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, assemble kingdoms, and to pour out my indignation, all of my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, there it is again, all the earth will be consumed. God switches back to the nations surrounding Judah as a testament to following through on his word. He points to the other nations that he has destroyed. He pleads, don't be like them. Don't act like them. Listen to the correction that I give you and it will go well. Turn back. Repent. Your dwelling will be secure. But as always, when left a human will they continue in their disobedience and do not listen or relent. Therefore, the wrath of God is coming, but praise be to God that he decides to act against their will. He saves without merit. He changes hearts without pedigree. So no matter how depressing the message of judgment is of Zephaniah or how other minor prophets, depressing that it is, it's never the last word of God. Praise God, it's never the last word. As we will see next, this indictment offers hope as well. A hope of reconciliation through repentance and faith. Let's read it. Let's read it together. Verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him. With one accord from the beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst the proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people hum humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall gaze and lie, graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What a major gear shift we see here. In the three and a half chapters were written in a minor chord. This one just augmented to major. It's an oasis in a scald desert. Redemption in the midst of wrath. This is music to our ears here in this morning. There is hope. There is reconciliation. There is a way. And notice everything that he says starts with I. 
or it flows directly through his hands. You see, God is implying that he and he alone is the part of this chapter and the perfecter of our faith and salvation. The, the last part of this chapter is, is through Christ and his death and burial and resurrection, but, but also when he returns again to right all the wrongs and free his captive. Let's look closely at what he says in, in verse 9. He says they will have a pure speech. This is referring specifically Babylon. They had the Tower of Babel. They built it to ascend to the gods and be like God. God destroyed it, scattered them, and scattered their languages, but he's putting back together a people with one voice, with one word, that it will praise God back together. It will be a pure speech that he is putting together. Verse 10, he is drawing his children home. He is drawing his exiles, the remnant of Judah, us as the Gentiles. He's drawing us home to be one nation, one nation who is the Lord's, one people. In 12 and 13, 12 and 13, he's saying, seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Call upon the Redeemer, looking forward to the Messiah who is promised. He was foretold by the prophets, seen in the pages of the Old Testament, and foreshadow, its foreshadow is Christ. Their speech will be pure and they can rest because sin, shame, guilt, and fear have been eliminated Let's go on. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Shout aloud. Shout rejoice. Your judgment has been taken away. This is not a one and done celebration, but a new way of life as we remember our sin. And yet we, we, we then use it as rejoice. Listen to this. When we understand the depth of our sin and the wrath and incurs the joy of our salvation should overflow. We should be overflowing in joy and in excitement, knowing the wrath and knowing our Savior. Knowing the wrath and then knowing what Jesus Christ took upon his shoulders as he died in our place and for our sins on the cross. That wrath was assuaged through Christ, meaning he took it and there is no more. He said, it is finished. That should cause his people to rejoice. Let's, let's hit 16 and 17 on that day. It shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. This is through Christ in this. A God of wrath wants to be in your midst. This is through Christ. This is apocryphal. He's saying because of the death of Jesus Christ, I am now in your midst because he has taken that punishment. He has taken your sin away. I am with you now, a mighty one who will save. His salvation eclipses his wrath when you are in Christ. He will rejoice over you with gladness. It already said the people that rejected him. You have rejected him. The, the Jews have rejected him. Yet he is exulting over you with gladness because it is his salvation that brings him joy. Jesus said, for the joy set before me, I endured the cross. 
This is a joy that comes through His Son, Jesus. And that we would accept that joy this morning. And listen to this. Not only does He, he, he rejoice over with, uh, with gladness, He will exult over you with loud singing. Have you ever done that to your child? Sing to them, Sadie, I love you. You are beautiful. Like, can you imagine that? God of Ritbath is singing over us out of his love for us. Therefore, we give it back to him as we worship him with our voice, with our songs, not only here today, but as we go out through our weeks and months in life. Breath. Let's finish up. I will gather, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. Listen, he's writing this knowing the impending consequences of their actions are coming. He says, I will gather them who mourn for the festival so that no you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at this time I will deal with your oppressors, and I will save the lame. And, and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all of the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. And at that time, when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before the, your eyes, says the Lord. Zephaniah is writing these final are blurry full knowledge that destruction is coming. His tears are blurring the pages and blurring his eyes, knowing the pain that will come. But God says seven times, I will, I will save, I will keep you, I will keep you steadfast, I will return your fortunes. Though they'll be carried off into foreign lands as a punishment for their sins, it is meant to cleanse, not to destroy. It is meant to purify and not to annihilate. God will be in their midst a mighty one who will save. This ultimate salvation of the end of the chapter, 18 through 20, is upon the return of Christ. Upon the return of Christ, which is at the same moment where we experience that same salvation. It will be the same for us now. We face trials in this life. We face the consequences of our actions and the actions that are rendered against us. There is pain and there is anguish in the difficult situations we face. But if we are in Christ, meaning like verses 9 through 12 said that we are calling upon his name, that we are meek and humble before will and seeking living in obedience, accept worship, then God will save you from the wrath to come. Because... His joy is in our salvation. Therefore, let us rejoice. What a day of judgment that will be when Christ returns to exact wrath upon the enemies of God. What a day of calamity that will be when the sword protruding out of his mouth to strike down his enemies. What a day of destruction that will be one where every heart trembles. What a day of rejoicing that will be for those who are in Christ for those who take the name of Jesus as their Savior and King, for it will be upon this day that your sin and the sin committed against you will be trampled and the sins committed against you will be taken away. What a day of rejoicing as our Savior pours out the wrath that we will not endure. Therefore, until that day, repent. 
Call upon the name of the Lord for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. Humbly enter into the presence of our King through His Son, Jesus Christ, by accepting Him as your Savior. Destruction is coming, and is coming for all those who are against God, who do not take His name. What a day to be feared. What a day to be reckoned. But what a glorious day to be in Christ. Therefore, just a few points of application this morning. Turn from sin to Christ. If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your king, today is the morning. That day of wrath is coming. That day of destruction is approaching. God does not lie. When he declares it, it will come to pass. Repent and turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins, for the assuaging of the wrath of God. And on that note, make repentance a lifestyle. Repentance is not a one and done either. It's not a, hey, I did that that day. I, I said, thank you, Jesus, and, and now I'm, I'm good. No, we are continually sinful in this fallen nature. We are continually in need of the Lord to clean us, to, to wash us, to wash over us, to forgive us of our sins. Yes, Jesus' death is final, meaning he forgave us of our sins past, sins present, and sins forward, but we still need to be sanctified, drawing more and more like him. Therefore, our, our, our hearts should be of a repentant lifestyle and last. Gosh, guys, let the wrath that you have escaped from be a motivation to worship. Come on. Y'all scream at a dog's game. Y'all scream at a concert. Come on. Let, your, let, let the knowledge of the wrath that you have been saved for, the joy of the Lord's salvation that eclipses his wrath for you, let that be your motivation to worship. Let's come back together. Let, let's worship together, and then as we depart, let's go. Let's show the world that there is something to celebrate, and that is the coming of Christ again, his judgment of sin, and being found in him on that day. Let's pray. Father God, you have given us much to chew on this morning as we acknowledge the depth and the breadth and the height of your wrath that's coming upon you in a lot I pray for Gospel Community Church that we, would, that we would go to you in a lifestyle of repentance, coming to you as our King and our Savior, that we would repent and that we would live a life that is worthy of the manner of the gospel that you've placed upon us. Father, I pray, Father, that, that, that joy in our salvation would lead our lives, that we would be found in you, and that those around us would find that joy that overflows out of us, not not just when we're gathered together, but in all of our days. And Father, may we make you the height of our worship. Yes. May we worship you with our life, with our time, with all that we have until that day when you gather together one nation with one purified voice. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. 
Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.